Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is now the seventh episode of season four. I had a message last week from one of my listeners on Spotify and they said that the episode kept skipping. It didn't skip for me when I checked but I think I did mess up the editing in one part of the show. I just can't remember at which point. Apologies for that but hey, I'm only human. Just like everyone else, I am susceptible to mistakes. If you know me, then I am just the most clumsy person you've ever met, so it's right within my MO, that. Thanks, though, Tegan, for raising that to me via Instagram. It is appreciated. I'd also like to say a massive thank you to every single person who has listened to British Murders over the last 11 months since the show launched in December 2020. It recently surpassed 200,000 downloads, which is absolutely amazing. I'm over the moon at that. I won't get all mushy on you, but please know that I do appreciate every single one of you. If you are watching this on YouTube, I've gone from using my laptop camera, which is terrible, back to my phone. It's more work, but it's going to be a lot of a you know, better picture, basically. It also means that you'll see how tired I look. Why do I look so tired? Well, I'm a father of a toddler, and I work, and I do this on the side. I'm just a tired man. That's why it's in HD now, and I look like shit, but hey... Whatever. As always, let's kick off the show with this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. That, as ever, was the ridiculously cute jingle for the show's opening icebreaker segment named Daddy Facts or Dad Facts. It's the part of the show that involves me reading out a random dad fact from a pack of cards my daughter got me a few years ago, and here is this week's fact. Make DIY fire starters from twisted rolls of newspaper by dipping cotton pads into candle wax or by cutting out egg cartons and filling them with shredded paper and candle wax. I think that's kind of something that we could potentially use on a desert island for once, guys. We found one. Now, I don't know where you get egg boxes on a deserted island. Or candles. Because you need candles to make candle wax, obviously. Seems quite long, that, doesn't it? Maybe just rub two sticks together. Like Ramirez. Yeah. Kind of useful, only if you've got the tools required. Never mind. Um, let's move on to the second part of the show. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Hi-ya! Here is this week's haiku. Lights flashing blue-red. I stiffen, the gun in hand. A breath, then alert. This week's picture... It looks like a, a police car, I believe. Like um, kind of a police car with flashing lights, which kind of makes sense. Flashing blue and red. There you go. As a reminder, a haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of five, seven, and five. It's also meant to be read in one breath. And I get these from the Serial Killers book of haiku by Rose Bundy. There is a link in my bio if you're interested in all things murderous and Japanese poem style. It's fun if you like poetry. So, with that done, let's get on to this week's case. This case was suggested by listener Lizzie Hayes. Now, Lizzie was the one who suggested the Olga and Dylan Freeman case that I covered in episode one of season four of British Murders. Lizzie sent an email to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com, and as with all case suggestions, I added it to my episode list, and here we are. As another reminder, this fourth season is made up entirely of listener-suggested cases. If you want a case to be covered and get a shout-out, please do get in touch. 
Season 5's episode list is filling up quickly, so please do keep your case suggestions coming in if you want yours to be featured sooner rather than later. As always, let's start with a look at the area where this story takes place. We're in Bristol this week, or what I like to call the graffiti capital of England. Now in August last year, I visited Bristol. It was on a stag do, and my goodness was I shocked at how run down the place was. Granted, we did stay in a somewhat impoverished area where people were openly buying crack at 10am. The police even knocked on our door once looking for a random female that we'd never heard of, but I did expect more from the place. The best word I could use to describe Bristol is edgy. It's the sort of place where hipsters walk around with outrageous sunglasses on, some form of an edgy hat like a French beret, a sleeveless top, rolled up chinos and flip-flops. That's cool in Bristol, you know, you look cool, you'd be like, wow, look how edgy that guy is. A full English breakfast, it doesn't exist down there, instead it's more like avocado and toast, or three chips served in a bowling shoe on a spade, that kind of vibe. I'm sure it has its lovely areas too, as do all towns and cities in England, but maybe I just went to the wrong one. With my personal review of the most populous city in southwest England over with, let's run through my top seven facts about Bristol. Why seven? Because I can. In at number one, it's the world's largest manufacturer of hot air balloons. Hmm. Number two, infamous pirate Edward Teach, better known as Blackbeard, had a hideout in Bristol's Redcliffe Caves. Number three, the first modern bungee jumps were made from the Clifton Suspension Bridge on April 1st, 1979. Number four, Bristol chocolate company Fry's created the first ever chocolate Easter egg in 1873. Number five, Aardman Animations Limited are based in Bristol. They're the animation studio who brought us Morph, Creature Comforts, Shaun the Sheep, Chicken Run, and of course, Wallet and Gromit. Number six, Until the standardisation of time after train travel was introduced, Bristol used to have its own time zone. Its clocks ran 10 minutes behind the ones in London. No idea why. Because it's edgy, baby. And finally, at number seven, graffiti artist Banksy is from Bristol, as are comedians Lee Evans and Stephen Merchant. Now, in hindsight, it looks like I definitely only saw the poor side of this beautiful city. Because it's received the following awards... The best city to live in Britain, one of the 10 happiest cities to work in the UK, the best culinary destination in the world, the UK's greenest city, the UK's most environmentally friendly city, one of the best European cities to visit, and it's a UNESCO city of film. I simply must go again, but with a good guide this time, not on a stag do. If any Bristolians are listening, please reach out and tell me the best things to do in your wonderful city. Wonderful according to online, not according to my experience. Now then, let me introduce the first character in this week's story. Typically I start with the villain, but I'm not going to do that this week. Instead, allow me to introduce a man named Bijan Ebrahimi. Born in the Western Asian country of the Islamic Republic of Iran in 1969, Bijan lost both of his parents when he was in his early 20s. His mother, who had suffered a stroke in 1981 and was paralysed as a result, passed away 10 years later in 1991. His father fell ill with cancer the following year in 1992 and sadly passed away a few years later. Fast forward to the year 2000, the then 31-year-old Bijan decided to leave Iran and made his way to the UK as a refugee. 
As well as losing his parents early in his life, Bijan had mobility issues due to an untreated back condition that had plagued him since his 20s. He registered as disabled upon arriving in the UK. His main hobby was maintaining his hanging baskets, which he watered regularly every day. So, where does Bristol come into this story? The award-winning city, which by the way is its own ceremonial county, is where Bijan was housed by the local council. Specifically, it was the Brislington area of South Bristol where Bijan ended up calling home after being granted indefinite leave to remain in the UK in July 2001. Historically, Brislington and South Bristol in general was seen as traditional, British, Caucasian, a working class area. Back in the early 2000s, there was a lot of graffiti all over Brislington's walls which read White Briz. That could either mean White Bristol or White Brislington, I suppose. Still, there appeared to be a lot of what one can only describe as white supremacist propaganda on the streets at the time. No idea whether it's there now. I don't recall seeing anything like that where I stayed, but I don't really know whereabouts in Bristol I stayed, to be fair. I mention this because Bijan received a lot of abuse as soon as he arrived in the UK. Some of the abuse he suffered was genuinely shocking. For example, in 2005, one of Bijan's housemates threw boiling water all over him in his shared Bedminster property. The housemate was later convicted and jailed for the attack, but that's not exactly a welcome to England kind of statement, is it? He was allocated a caseworker by UK charity Stand Against Racism and Equality, or SARI. He was eventually moved by the council to a flat in the Whartons housing estate in Brislington in November 2006. The abuse didn't stop there though, as his new neighbours were just as unbearable as his previous ones. His flat was covered with graffiti, some of which simply said the word pervert. I'm not sure how, but my research said that fire was put through his letterbox. Now, possibly that could have been like a flaming rag or some lit matches. His car was also set alight, and in total he made 9999 calls to the UK's emergency services. Why did his neighbours do this, I hear you ask? Was it simply racism? Well, according to the neighbours themselves, it was nothing to do with Bijan's race, though they would say that, wouldn't they? The reason provided by some of the neighbours, and more specifically the female neighbours, was that Bijan made them feel very uncomfortable. He would write letters to some of the female tenants on the estate to try and make friends with them, but it backfired massively. Worse though, rumours started being spread around the estate that Bijan was a paedophile, that seems a bit out of left field, right? With no evidence to back the claim up, the estate's residents were convinced that Bijan had been asking some of the local children to visit his flat on their own. The rumours grew to the point where a petition was handed to the local council by one of the estate's female residents who said they were concerned that one of their neighbours was inviting children into his property. The petition ended with the council being asked to move Bijan to another housing estate. Remember, Bijan called the police and the council several times, but no action was taken by either of them. He was showed zero support. Fast forward to 2008, and the complaining residents finally got their wish. Bijan was moved to Capgrave Crescent Housing Estate, located only a mile down the road from his previous estate. It's safe to say that his former neighbours weren't best pleased with how close he was living to them, despite having him removed on the back of a claim without any evidence. As with everywhere he'd lived, things started badly for Bijan. However, if the following testimony is true, it wasn't the neighbour's fault in question. 
a female neighbour decided to welcome Bijan to the estate by giving him a homemade welcome pack. Sometimes neighbours in the UK do this. You might take over some tea bags, some milk, a couple of cleaning products, just to welcome them to the neighbourhood. It's like taking round a box of cookies or something, maybe, in America. We don't do that here. We just give them milk and tea. Allegedly, Bijan then started pretty much harassing the lady by looking through her windows and posting sexual letters through her letterbox. I say allegedly because when the police spoke to Bijan and arrested him, he told them it was in fact the female neighbour who was harassing him. It was he who was receiving sexual notes through the door. There's a lot of he said, she said in this story, by the way. I've no idea which side is telling the truth and which side is lying. I'd love to know your thoughts on this case though, because it is a real head scratcher at times. Nothing came of the incident with the female neighbour because it's one person's word against the other with no evidence on either side. As a result, no further action was taken by law enforcement. Sadly, the paedophile rumours had followed Bijan to Capgrave Crescent and his new neighbours weren't best pleased. He was subsequently called a pedo, his precious plant pots were vandalised, litter was left all over his doorway and large groups of residents would often gather outside his house late at night. One of the estate's male neighbours said on one occasion that Bijan called him over and showed him a photo on his phone. It was a photo of three children, one of whom was the male resident's 11-year-old daughter. It's a bit weird that, isn't it? Here comes the head-scratching he said, she said part of this particular scenario. The male neighbour said he confronted Bijan about the picture, but that he ran inside his own house. Bijan, though, said that he took the picture to identify the children responsible for vandalising his garden area. After a while, Bijan upgraded from simply photographing his neighbours to filming them on his phone. That was the starting point of an unfortunate chain of events for Bijan Ibrahimi. On July 11th, 2013, Bijan was evidence gathering by filming one of his neighbours from his kitchen window. Lee James, the neighbour in question, was behaving antisocially and was consuming a large amount of alcohol in the presence of his kids in the communal courtyard area of the estate. Upon noticing Bijan and mistakenly thinking he was filming his children, the paedophile rumour was clearly believed, Lee James confronted Bijan inside Bijan's house. Filming the entire thing on his phone, Bijan can be heard telling Lee to get out of his house whilst the drunk neighbour forces his way inside Bijan's doorway. The whole thing is available to watch online if you wish to see it, but this is what Lee said during that heated confrontation. I'm going to ring the police station saying you're taking pictures of me. What are you taking pictures of me for? That's crude. Don't you dare take pictures of me, alright? Get the fuck away with the fucking pictures, alright? Take pictures of me again and I'll fuck you up. Bijan immediately called the police after Lee was dragged away by his girlfriend. During the 999 call, again, all available online, the audio and video, Bijan said to the operator that one of his new neighbours had headbutted him, though it's clear to see from the video footage that Lee did no such thing. When asked if Lee had said anything racist to him, Bijan said no, which was true. I'd like to point out that it's also clear from the footage that Bijan was filming Lee's antisocial behaviour and not his children. To say Bijan had the police's number on speed dial would be a bit of an understatement. It was noted by the dispatched officers that day that he had made 78 calls to them in total since moving to Capgrave Crescent. He regularly complained about the neighbours' pets, the loudness of music, ball games being played on the grass, etc. 
The story will continue after these quick messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. Upon their arrival at Capgrave Crescent, PCs Helen Harris and Leanne Winter, remember their names as it'll be important later, felt the situation was being antagonised by Bijan, who was still filming everything on his phone. He was also shouting things towards the officers whilst they attempted to gather information from the residents who'd gathered and formed sort of a mob in the communal courtyard area. Despite being asked to remain in his flat, Bijan didn't listen. PCs Harris and Winter then decided to take Bijan to the local police station rather than Lee James. Bizarre decision? Or tactically the right thing to do? Their rationale for taking in Bijan as opposed to Lee was that they didn't want to leave Bijan alone with the rest of the mob. They arrested him for his own safety. No charges were filed against Lee James, by the way, despite him being heard shouting, I'm going to kill him, as the police car pulled away. Bijan arrived at Broadbury Road Police Station at 10.13pm that night. I've watched the CCTV footage from inside Broadbury Station that night and my goodness, it's uncomfortable viewing. Bijan continued to talk and talk and talk, and the arresting officers quickly grew tired of him. One such instance of rudeness came when Bijan said, I'm talking to you as a friend, to which one of the PCs replied, No, I'm not your friend. I'm a police officer, and you're a pain in the ass. Don't speak to me. How's that for serving the Queen in the office of constable, with fairness, integrity, diligence and impartiality? Later that evening, Bijan was told the following... Right, you're going to be arrested for a public order offence. You've antagonised the situation, like I've already said. We've asked you not to do things like take photographs and film things. You've gone ahead and done that, and now you've been arrested for that. So you do not have to say anything, etc. He was read his rights at that point. Remember, Bijan called the police asking for their help after Lee James forced himself into his flat and aggressively confronted him. It's difficult to assess based on the footage available, but the officers at Broadbury Station were convinced that Bijan was under the influence of alcohol due to his constant word slurring. Bijan drank to excess regularly, according to his neighbours. The most disturbing part of the police station footage, though, at least for me, was when Bijan extended his arm to make a point whilst talking to the custody sergeant who was sat behind the front desk. In doing so, Bijan barely touches a part of one of the PC's arms. A straightforward accident. He wasn't even looking at her. He probably didn't even feel the contact, to be honest. It was that light and insignificant. Regardless, the officer quickly smacked Bijan's hand away with a piece of paper that she had in her hand and sharply said, Get off! That was followed by a proper awkward silence and a look between her and the custody sergeant. I can only describe it as, Shit, I shouldn't have done that, should I? One of those looks. Deciding to press the point further, in for a penny and all that, the officer then said, Don't keep pointing at me. How rude are you? He wasn't even pointing at her. 
The custody sergeant went on to ask Bijan if he had any mental health problems, to which he replied he suffers from depression. After a night in the cells, our story resumes at midday on July 12, 2013, when Bijan was released without charge from Broadbury Road Police Station. During his discharge, Bijan was explicitly asked if he had any friends or relatives he could stay with, or had anywhere else he could go. Immediately returning to Capgrave Crescent was clearly a risk. Bijan said, No, I'm going home. With that decided, an officer dropped him off, and Bijan promptly started tending to his hanging baskets. Whilst there, the officer decided to speak to a few of Bijan's neighbours, including Lee James's girlfriend. She reiterated that Bijan was a paedophile. Her unsubstantiated claim was backed up by some of the other residents who began to surround the officer. What's interesting about that is that, according to the officer, not one resident mentioned Bijan's race or said anything racist. Their only bone of contention was that they believed him to be a paedophile and a nightmare neighbour, despite the officer saying that she had seen the footage he'd taken and confirmed that he in fact was not a paedophile. Having said that, another neighbour, one who wasn't part of the angry mob, said that Capgrave was an incredibly racist community. So I really don't know who or what to believe at this point. From around 2.30pm on July 12, 2013, the day he was released, to just after 9.30pm that same night, Bijan made a total of 13 calls to Avon and Somerset Police. Each time, he asked to speak directly with PC Kevin Duffy, who was his beat manager. A community beat manager is a police officer within the British Police's territorial police forces, usually responsible for a particular neighbourhood or the area of a town or city. He was clearly designated to Capgrave Crescent. Each time Bijan called, the operator would speak with PC Duffy, who said he was not prepared to talk to Bijan that evening. Bijan had been prioritised on PC Duffy's list, but not until the following Monday, and this was a Friday. Despite repeatedly telling the operator that his life was in danger and that a mob had gathered at his door, PC Duffy refused to give Bijan the time of day. One bizarre thing about that situation is that Bijan refused to have anyone else sent to Capgrave apart from PC Duffy. He also didn't call 999 once that day, instead choosing to call the local police station each time. Can't quite wrap my head around that one. If you think that's bad, listen to this. At 7.32pm, Bijan called again, but this time he asked for PC Leanne Winter instead of PC Duffy. I told you to remember the name. The operator rang through to PC Winter, who was on a break and eating a pot noodle. This is all on audio recordings, I'm not making this up. Upon hearing who the operator had on the line, PC Winter said the following, and this is a quote. I don't want to speak to him. Tell him I'm busy at a job, and it won't be me coming. When Bijan called at 8.07pm and asked for PC Duffy, he told the operator he had been told by PC Duffy's sergeant that PC Duffy would be attending Capgrave at 7pm. Take a shot every time I say PC Duffy. PC Duffy was furious at what he said was a flat lie from Bijan, and PC Duffy was even considering reporting him for harassment at that point. PC Duffy, are you pissed yet? PC Duffy contacted PCSO Andrew Passmore and told him to head over to Capgrave Crescent to show a bit of a presence, conduct a foot patrol. PCSO Passmore later called it in, saying he was told to do a little area tour, show a bit of a presence, but nobody was there. Nobody was talking to Bijan, nobody was near Bijan. It was fine. Plot twist? He was lying. He didn't carry out the foot patrol as requested by PC Duffy. Take a shot. 
By 9.42pm, Bijan was tired of being ignored and headed down to Brislington Police Station. He called Avon and Somerset Police while standing outside, but was told to go home. Not one officer visited him that night. No incidents occurred that evening at Capgrave, which takes our story to the following day, Saturday, July 13th, 2013. A heat wave affected most of the UK in July 2013. It was the warmest and sunniest July since 2006 and the third warmest on record. As a result of the scorching temperatures, the residents were doing what I imagine most of the UK was doing, sitting outside and drinking. As the alcohol continued to flow into the early hours of Sunday, Lee James decided to once again confront Bijan Ebrahimi. This time though, the ending was far more violent. At around 1am, Bijan had come outside to water his hanging baskets. Lee seized the opportunity and grabbed hold of Bijan before dragging him to the side of the road at Whitmore Avenue. Lee proceeded to repeatedly kick Bijan so brutally that he ended up killing him. Not satisfied with ending Bijan's life, Lee acquired some white spirit, doused Bijan's body in it and set it alight. White spirit is also known, I believe, as mineral spirits in North America and mineral turpentine in Australasia. It's all the same thing. The police were soon called by one of the neighbours who informed them a drunk male was standing next to a burning body on the side of the road. Given the recent interactions with him, the police had an idea the burning body was Bijan's. Upon arriving at Capgrave, the police headed immediately for Bijan's flat and saw his door wide open. Water was even still dripping from his hanging baskets. Lee James was the immediate key suspect given his history with Bijan and an independent witness confirmed that she had seen Lee kick Bijan to death. She said she saw Lee stamping on Bijan's head while shouting, Have some of that! Lee, who had a history of domestic violence charges, had spoken openly about burning Bijan's house down and even warned police he would sort it out himself if they did not act. He said, I'm not scared of being arrested or going to prison, and I would do anything to protect my children. It was later revealed that Lee dragged Bijan's body with the help of Stephen Norley, another Capgrave resident. After setting Bijan's body alight, the pair threw their clothes away. Lee's girlfriend, who, along with the pair's daughters, had been locked inside their flat by Lee, said that upon his return, Lee said, We sorted him out for you. Tell the girls I did it for them. He's been burnt. Imagine asking your girlfriend to tell your daughters that he killed someone for them and that he's burnt his body. What? It's awful. Lee was soon arrested and admitted having kicked Bijan in the head four or five times like a football. Lee James was sentenced to life imprisonment by Mr. Justice Simon with a minimum term to serve of 18 years. During his closing statement, Mr. Justice Simon said, you decided wrongly that he was a paedophile and that this put him outside the law. You thought you were entitled to take the law into your own hands. What you did had nothing to do with law or justice. The law protects life. This was an act of murderous injustice. Following the murder of Bijan Ebrahimi, Safer Bristol Executive Board decided to conduct a review of the management of circumstances leading to his death by all agencies and organisations involved to elicit any lessons that need to be learned. The report found that although Bijan's ethnic origin may have contributed to Lee James's negative view of him, there is no direct evidence to establish this with any certainty. 
It also said that although the fatal attack on Bijan could not have been predicted, the risk of him being targeted for violence was obvious. It also noted that Bijan should not have been arrested on July 11, 2013, whereas Lee James should have. The report concludes that there was a collective failure of both Avon and Subaset Constabulary and Bristol City Council to provide an appropriate and professional service to Bijan Ebrahimi. Bristol City Council's response to the findings was as follows. Our priority is to make Bristol a safe place for all people seeking sanctuary and to create an environment in which they can feel welcomed. This was a tragic case that should never have happened. We fully accept the council's role in failing Mr. Ebrahimi and his family and we fully accepted the findings of the 2017 multi-agency review. Following this, a task group was set up to ensure all partners take on board the lived experience of disabled asylum seekers. We have worked with the police, local hate crime prevention agency SARI and equality and diversity specialists to deliver race awareness training across the council and the development of new strategies, processes and practices. We are determined that Bijan's legacy ensures every community feels safe and welcomed by the city. PCs Leanne Winter and Helen Harris, the arresting officers on July 11, 2013, were dismissed without notice by Avon and Somerset Constabulary for treating Bijan unprofessionally, rudely and unkindly. PCSO Andrew Passmore was found guilty of misconduct in a public office and jailed for four months. PC Kevin Duffy was found guilty of gross misconduct and jailed for 10 months. PC Duffy feels that he was a scapegoat due to being a white man in a police uniform. The following statement was made by Avon and Somerset Police after the dismissals. The murder of Bijan Ebrahimi was a tragedy and we fully accept the policing response was wholly inadequate and we failed to protect him. We wasted no time in implementing subsequent changes and a report found that our force responds well to incidents involving vulnerable people and works effectively with other agencies to protect them. We're now recognised as a leading force in the use of data analytics which has transformed the way we work. Had we been able to use this approach in 2013, Bijan would have been identified as one of our most vulnerable victims, triggering the level of safeguarding he needed. And that was the story of British murderer Lee James and Bijan Ebrahimi. Thanks again to Lizzie Hayes for suggesting that case. A huge shout out goes to Zeppelin Films and Channel 5 Television. Their TV movie titled Murdered by a Mob, The Killing of Bijan Ebrahimi was an excellent resource used during this episode's research. The director was Stephen Granderson and it aired on May 19th, 2021 on Channel 5. Please seek it out and watch it if you can, it's really good. I've got two new reviews to read out this week. I say new, they're from Facebook, so June and October 2021. I don't really check them on there. Thank you first to Katie Luth for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on Facebook. Katie said, I love this podcast. Five stars, short and to the point. Lots of different murder stories, easy listening. Thank you. Cheers, Katie. This episode might be a bit longer than normal, but hey-ho. Thank you also to Denise Ward for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on Facebook. Denise said, brilliant podcast, five-star, really recommend it, short and sweet, could easily listen to one or two whilst making tea. Thank you, Denise. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. In that case, you can do so on iTunes or Podchaser or even Facebook, though I might not see them on there as quickly as on the others. All reviews help increase the show's exposure and they are greatly appreciated. 
You can support British Murders each month by joining my Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash britishmurders. Thank you to Justin Weir for becoming my latest Patreon member. Justin will now get early access to ad-free episodes as well as access to my scripts. You'll get the same if you join up. If you prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. And for more on British Murders, please check out all my social media channels and YouTube. Merchandise is available to purchase at Teespring. The link is in the episode description, it's too long to say. Please continue to email your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a lovely cheeky shout out from me. That's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.